0: here in this building next sabbath to enjoy the closeness of worship that we somehow cannot convey to you through the television set so i hope that you'll do that well we are going to pause now to pray as is my custom and ask the lord's blessing as we open his word and find counsel for the 21st century and the 21st century Christian. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful that we can come together this morning in praise and in worship to humble our hearts before you and to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? To submit our lives completely and to follow your lead wherever that goes, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, even if it crosses over our pride and our passions. Make us true disciples and followers of you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the fellowship, the friendship of those around us who love you as well. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. How many of you like game shows? This is not a game show crowd. Okay, I see one right here. By the way, Danny, you owe me a phone call. You need to call me this week. I don't think I saw any over here. Anyway, there is a game show I used to watch when I was a kid. It's called, it was called the $10,000 Pyramid. And as salaries increased, we had to increase the amount, so it went to the $25,000, the $100,000 pyramid. And then just this week, uh, I was watching and uh, watching a little television, and I saw that it's back. Now, the way that you play the game is, the caller gives out a number of items, and you're supposed to figure out the connection between them. So that's what we're going to try right now. I'm going to give you a list of items, and then at the end we're going to see if you can find out what the category is. Or you can tell me what the category is. So let's start out with licorice, bike tires, graduation gowns, a brunette's hair, charcoal, things that are black. Good, very good. That was easy. We're going to try one that's a little more difficult now. Love, the fifth commandment, the seventh commandment, praying together, mutual respect, vacations, things that help preserve the? You're very good. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning because that is the theme of Paul's uh, exposition, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If for some reason you forgot yours and I don't hear those pages turning, we are going to have them on the screen as well. So, things that God preserves, the family. We pay a lot of attention to the things that are worth preserving. A gardener spends hours weeding in the garden. The classic car owner spends hours washing and polishing his car. We pay a lot of attention to those things. The Italian opera singer rests his voice. These are things that people consider valuable and worth preserving. God considers the family valuable And worth preserving. Now, Paul is going to speak to the Corinthians. It is the spring of 57 AD, and Paul is in the middle of a three year evangelistic outreach in the city of Ephesus. He has already spent a year and a half in Corinth, but now that he's away, problems seem to be cropping up, and he's hearing about these difficulties that the church is going through. And they also have a list of questions which they want answered. So through the first six chapters of Corinth, Pastor Jeff has skillfully led us through an understanding of the problems that existed in Corinth. In chapter 7, we turn a page, and Paul begins to answer the questions that the Corinthian believers have addressed directly to him. So, uh, he's going to talk about family matters. Paul, raised with a knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, a person who had attended the schools of the rabbis, he has a broad scriptural knowledge from which to draw as he talks with these new Corinthian believers who know nothing about the scriptures, whose understanding of sexuality is only from the Greek mythology where they have gods and goddesses that are adulterous and philandering and doing all kinds of things. So that's the backdrop for what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you're with me in chapter 1. Chapter chapter 7, verse 1, excuse me. And here's what the Bible tells us, and recorded from that time. Now, regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. Boy, that doesn't sound like a very positive view of marriage, does it? It is good to refrain. In fact, the literal translation would be, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But this is a euphemism. This is what he's talking about. What is Paul actually trying to say? Is he saying that sex is bad? Well, no, not indeed. Let's look at the biblical background, beginning with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He made them female and male. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the earth. Reign over the fish that are in the sea the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So, the basis for male and female, for our human sexuality, is rooted in the creation mandate, the scripture that tells us why God created us male and female. He called us, or he he created us this way, for a purpose, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with people who would honor and trust and love God. And any time when we get away from that basic understanding of Scripture, we're asking for trouble. And there are a number of Christian teachers who've kind of drifted from that. And they're saying, well, God created this for pleasure. Well, this is the truth of Scripture. God linked procreation, with something that is pleasurable, and he did this by design, so that life would be perpetuated. There cannot be any love for God if there is no life. If a person is born in a home where there is no love, one of you, commissioned by God, is going to reach out to them and share the love of Jesus and then bring them into the church family. But if there's no person to reach out to, there's no one that we can bring to love God. There has to be life. So God created life and then linked these two things together so that life would always go on, so there would always be the opportunity and possibility for people to love and grow to know him. Now, if that is our purpose, I want to address people who don't have children. Does that mean that God doesn't have a place for you? Oh, absolutely not. Because the purpose is to pass on the torch of God's love to others. Can you do that, even if you don't have biological children? Well, of course. And there are good reasons why people choose not to have children. Some of them have genetic factors uh, that that they're concerned with, or maybe a personal physical condition where they would not be able to raise children in the way that they would like to. But even if you don't have biological children, you're still part of God's people and still... Can carry out the creation mandate. My cousin Jana was just such a person. Jana was born as a result of fertility drugs that were used back in the 1950s, which we no longer use because they're dangerous. And as a matter of fact, she struggled with cancer for most of her life because of those drugs. She did not have children. But every child in the Indianapolis Glendale church was Jana's kid. There was no kid in that church that didn't love her. She had them over to their homes. She went out to play with them. Jana was everybody's mom in the Indianapolis Glendale church. So even if you don't have biological children, don't worry. You can still read Genesis and say, I'm a part of that. Well, that's not the only thing that Paul probably read. So we're going to move now to Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. If anything is worth preserving and protecting, you'd think that we would find something about it in the Ten Commandments, and indeed, we find three distinct commands that relate to the family in a direct way. First, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Then you will live long, a full life, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Also the seventh commandment. You must not commit adultery. And then the final of the Ten Commandments. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife. We move on to the book of Deuteronomy. So, God's people are getting ready to move into the promised land. And God wanted them to have a wonderful experience, and to make sure that things went well for them. And so, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find further instructions. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 3. Listen, listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then it will go well with you, all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Underscore that. Talk to them or talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you are getting up. Tie them on your hands, wear them on your forehead, etc., etc., etc. God gave families to the human race so that the story of God and his son Jesus could be passed on from generation to generation. That is our purpose. That is why we exist. And that is why there was physical intimacy. Let's go on to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them. Show them no mercy. Notice you must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. If there was ever any question about the importance of the family in relationship to true worship, that should be erased as we read this verse. Young people here today you who are not married, don't take the risk of marrying someone who is not a follower of Jesus. It will lead you in the wrong direction. It will lead to unhappiness in the future. If you want the ultimate happiness, let God bring that partner to you who is also a believer in Christ and make no compromise about that. All right. From Deuteronomy chapter 7 we move on to Malachi chapter 2 verse 16. And here the Bible says, "For I hate divorce," says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce Your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. Jesus takes up this theme in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. God hates divorce. Now, I want to hasten to add that God does not hate divorcees. Oftentimes when I preach from this verse, people who've been divorced don't like me. And that's okay. But God loves everyone. He loves those who have been divorced. I have a daughter who's been divorced. She hates divorce too. It broke up her family. There's probably no one who hates divorce more than those who have been divorced. So God is with those in that brokenness. But God doesn't like the brokenness. He doesn't like to see children having to be shuttled from one home to the other for this weekend or for that weekend for arrangements to be worked out. God hates the brokenness. He hates the pain that those children go through as they seek their own identity he hates it and we should too and we should do everything within our power to keep families together I heard a little amen out there early service I got a big amen okay thank you (laughs) I was hoping somebody would come through. Okay, so this is the background that Paul brings to the table when he's answering the questions of the Corinthians. Now, I wanted to bring a life coach, a family relations expert to the church today to have him summarize what the Bible says uh, about marriage and family. But, Unfortunately, he is not able to be with us. His name is Finn Solis, uh, and you've guessed correctly, uh, we are related. But since we couldn't bring him physically, we're going to do the, the second best thing, and that is uh, bring him by way of recording. So if you'll turn your attention to the screens for the next minute. What do you want? Omeo. You want Omeo? Yes. Yeah. I thought you said you just wanted a house. I want a house and a wife. And a wife? Yeah. How soon? I want a house. Oh, did we lose the rest of it? How soon do you want a wife's house? Wife? Wife? Could we try that again? I don't When? When do you want? Like tomorrow? When? When? Next week? When you're older? Yeah? How old? That old? It's pretty old, isn't it? So Finn says that he wants a house and a wife and children. That's what the Bible says. For not only does Finn have it right, he has it in the right order. Which proves that at the tender age of two years old, he is already smarter than 98% of the male population in the United States. This is how it usually works out, or, or I should say too often works out. It goes like this. Oops! I think we're having a kid. We're going to be parents. Number two. Well, what do you think? Do you think maybe we should get married so the kid will have a name? Number three. Well, since we didn't finish our education how are we going to put a roof over our heads and feed this kid? See, when it goes backwards, a child, and then marriage, and then we figure out how to take care of this, it doesn't work out very well. A house first, a wife next, and then children. That's God's design. And as imperfectly as it may work out, as imperfectly as our families may be, it sure works out a whole lot better than the other way around. House and a wife and children. Well, now we're going to open our Bibles. You've already been there for a while. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. You know, in the good old days, we had dowries The young man had to prove to the bride's father that he could support them. Who says old-fashioned isn't good? Okay. Now, regarding the question you sent in your letter, now that's important to remember. Paul is responding to a question he's been asked. Yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. Okay. what's Paul trying to say here? Is he opposed to physical intimacy? His inquirer has taken the position that Christians should not resort to the pagan temple prostitutes as we learned in chapters 5 and 6. Does that mean that he should also not sleep with a pagan unbelieving spouse? Now rather than just tear the questioner down, Paul takes a more diplomatic approach. He says, well, what you're saying is good, but I want to lead you to a wiser position. Because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. But I wish everyone were single, just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. Now, the Greek philosophers of the time had a dualistic understanding of reality. There's this higher part, this spiritual part up here, and then there's this other earthly part down here. And for them, the physical intimacy was part of this earthly part, the kind of dirty part, which was separate from this spiritual part and unfortunately a lot of Christian writing follows Greek dualism even within our own church a few years ago someone came up with a a very good idea that said when we have new believers joining the church we need to help them understand what it means to be a Christian so let's write a curriculum that will help them to make that transition from not being anything to being a fully committed believer. One of the things that is addressed in the curriculum is human sexuality. I was asked to write the teacher's guide for the lesson. But when I read the lesson, I was very disappointed because it was Christians don't, Christians don't, Christians don't, Christians don't. And I'm asking myself, well, what do Christians do? And so, when I wrote the teacher's guide, I had to gently walk around the lesson and provide what you're receiving this morning the spiritual context for human physical intimacy, which God says is good. We read in Genesis. If you go to the end of Genesis, God says that everything in that chapter is good. So, how do we deal with this? Well, there's an alternative. Because the Hebrews didn't see things that way. The Hebrews saw us as a unified being. You know, the other... Philosophy says when a person dies, they go to heaven and, and uh, that, that spirit goes to heaven. And the rest of it just, we don't know. But We don't believe that as Seventh-day Adventists. And we don't believe in the dualism thing at all. And we believe what the Bible teaches. That physical intimacy is a gift of God and God has declared it Good. And don't forget, if it weren't for physical intimacy, you wouldn't be here this morning either. So, we believe, as did Paul, that the Israelite position represented in the Song of Solomon, which exemplified a pure sensuality created by God, is the only correct position, and understanding of Scripture. There are two constants by which this can be measured, that all things can be measured, and that's life and love. God, in his love, created life. He wanted that to be perpetuated, and so he introduced physical intimacy for the purpose of procreation. As people give birth to more children, and, as Deuteronomy tells us, nurtures them in the admonition of the Lord, they grow to love God. They, in turn, have more children. And it was God's design that the earth would be filled with people who would love and trust and honor Him. As lives are created children, learn to appreciate the love of God from their parents. And perhaps that is why Paul is so affirming about marriage, even though he himself is single. Note these verses, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the mutual respect and love that should exist within a marriage. In Colossians chapter 3, you find pretty much a mirror image of what is written in Ephesians 5, just a little more condensed. In 1st Timothy chapter 3 verses 2 and 12, Paul affirms that a person's marital status is a condition for leadership. In 1st Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1st Timothy chapter 4 verses 1, he condemns those who say that Marriage is obsolete. There was an American religious group called the Shakers under the instruction of Mother Ann Lee who taught that celibacy was required of Christians. This was in the late 1800s, early, uh, or late 1700s, early 1800s. Needless to say, there are not very many Shakers around today. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 affirms in the mind of Paul that the marriage bed is something that is given by God as long as it's not defiled in any way. So Paul had a positive view of marriage. Let's continue with Paul's writings. He says, So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, It is better to stay unmarried, just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It is better to marry than to burn with lust. Now, these councils contain principles for all time. But Paul is not saying that widows should never marry. You have to remember the context. This letter was penned in when? A.D. Some of you are listening at the beginning. A.D. 57. Emperor Nero, who persecuted the Christians like no one else in history, reigned from A.D. 54 to A.D. 68. Paul is writing, right in the middle of some very violent persecutions of Christians. And so he's concerned about the people that he's writing to and the trials that they will go through if they are bringing children into the world. I don't know if any of you have ever watched the film. It's a documentary entitled Into the Arms of Strangers. It is a story of how Jews living in Europe were sneaking their children out of the country to England because of the persecution that was going on under Adolf Hitler. And they wanted their children to live. Many of them never got to see their children again because they died in the Holocaust. Well, if you've seen that film, you can understand just a little bit about Paul's concern here for those who would get married and have children and then have to live through that persecution. Now, <clears throat> let, me get, let me catch up here. We also need to remember that elsewhere, Paul advises widows to marry. So we have to consider the context here. Permit me an illustration. Let's suppose that there is a very stately oak tree right beside a beautiful home. And a violent windstorm comes through, and it partially uproots the tree so that it's leaning toward the house. And the owner of the house writes to Paul for counsel. And Paul writes back. And he says something like this. Concerning the tree of which you spoke, cut it down. Now, does that mean that Paul is a tree hater? Does that mean that he is telling believers in all times, in all places, cut down all trees? I don't think so. He's saying in this context, because of these circumstances, this is the course of action you are to follow. The principle is eternal, but the application was limited to that particular question in the mind of a Corinthian believer. So, Paul's recommendation against marriage should not be seen as a dictum for all time. So, finally, we get to the heart of Paul's counsel. But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single Or else be reconciled to him, and the husband must not leave his wife. Verse 12. Uh, Now I speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a believer, if a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed on you and remain as you were when God first called you. Paul recognized, for all the reasons that we have studied from Scripture, and there are many more verses that we could have summoned to our study, that marriage is for keeps. Marriage is for keeps. If there's any way that you can save your marriage, anything, that you can do to help someone else save their marriage, you are living in the will of God. God hates brokenness. God hates broken relationships. He wants us to be able to reconcile. He wants us to be able to express the love that He is through forgiveness. This is God's ideal. This is what God desires. Now I want to extend a caution, especially for young people here who might be saying, well, it's okay if I marry someone who's not a believer in Christ because Paul said you should stick with a spouse that's not a believer. So there must have been couples that weren't matched spiritually. Well, the context is you have someone that maybe came to an evangelistic series and they gave their heart to Christ, but their wife didn't give their heart to Christ. So that's what we're talking about here. But just for those that may be tempted to think otherwise, when I was a young pastor in Huntsville, Alabama, I received a phone call. A man was just up the road at Oakwood College, now Oakwood University, and he said, I'm a pastor's son, And I have three of my boys with me, and we need a place to stay uh, for a little while. So, being my first year in ministry and not knowing any better, I drove up there and put them in the car and got their suitcases and brought them home. Uh, Shortly after we had taken them to their rooms and were sitting around the table in the kitchen, he says, by the way, I probably should tell you that there's a warrant for my arrest in the state of Georgia. That made me feel real good, having a wife and an infant daughter in the other room, and I'm thinking, what did I let myself in for? Well, he explained that he had been raised as a pastor's son. His father was a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, but he wandered away from Christ. And while he was out there living in the world, he met this woman, and they married, and they had three boys. But the Lord wasn't ready to let him go. So the Lord kept working on his heart and working on his heart and finally he broke down and he gave his heart to the Lord but his wife didn't. You know, they are custody battles and you have to share the kids and their arrangement was that the kids would go to live with her during the summer where they could watch her with her boyfriend, live-in boyfriend in the home do drugs throughout the day. And Max decided he didn't want his boys to be exposed to that. So he broke the law. He broke the custody agreement. Ran to another state. He was followed there. There was a warrant for his arrest in the state of Georgia. He crossed the line into Alabama where we were living. And... We don't need to know any more of the story for the purpose of what I'm trying to get across. Young people, anyone who's not married and considering marriage, make it your priority to find someone who is a believer in Christ because if you don't, I promise you, you will be sorry. Love and life are the eternal principles which are at stake. If we get this right, we change the world. If we get it wrong, the world changes us. The world is looking for an expression of God's love that is convincing, that is selfless, that is choosing the right because it is right. I don't know if you're familiar with the composer, singer, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Some years ago, Stephen and his wife decided that they wanted to expand their family of love. They already had biological children. But they wanted to expand that, and so they adopted some girls from another country. And as he reflected upon how bringing them in to his family would forever change their lives for eternity. He wrote the song that I'm about to share. It's a beautiful song about love. It's entitled, When Love Brings You Home. heard the stories but they all sound too good to be true you've heard about a place called home but there doesn't seem to be one for you so one more night you cry yourself to sleep And drift off to a distant dream where love takes you in, everything changes. A miracle starts with a beat of a heart when love takes you home and says you belong here, the loneliness ends and a new life begins when love takes you in. And somewhere while you're sleeping Someone else is dreaming too Counting down the days until They hold you close and say I love you And like the rain that falls into the sea in a moment what has been Is lost in what will be When love takes you in Everything changes A miracle starts With a beat of a heart And this love We'll never let you go. There is nothing that could ever cause this love to lose its hold. When love takes you in, everything changes. A miracle starts with a beat of a heart When love takes you home And says you belong here The loneliness ends and a new life begins When love takes you in It takes you in for good. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, you've taken us into your family. And there's nothing, you say, that can ever separate us from your love. Lord, let us be good parents, good husbands, good wives, keeping the flame of your love alive in a planet filled with darkness. Let us be the lights that shine on our street, in our town, county, and state, in our world, that tell people there is real love, not the kind the world offers, but a kind that they can see in our families. Let us love the way that Jesus loved. For I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.